Hello and welcome to another special episode of the Good Friends of Jackson Elias. Once again, in a departure from our normal format, we are continuing with our reading of Nikolai Gogol's weird, weird tale of Ukrainian folklore, The V. This reading has been organised by our good friend Mike Percival Maxwell, and I will now hand over to him. As ever, our readers are assembled, so let's start by introducing them. Dom Allen. John Casey. Sarah Dovey. Rena Henzi. Mike Percival Maxwell. Sue Savage. And Scott Dalwood. And now, pour yourself a glass of something warming for this dark winter's night, whilst we present... The V by Nikolai Vasilevich Gogol. Part 3. When the sun had sunk below the horizon, the corpse was carried into the church. The philosopher supported one corner of the black-draped coffin upon his shoulder and felt an ice-cold shiver run through his body. The colonel walked in front of him, with his right hand resting on the edge of the coffin. The wooden church, black with age and overgrown with green lichen, stood quite at the end of the village in gloomy solitude. It was adorned with three round cupolas. One saw at the first glance that it had not been used for divine worship for a long time. Lighted candles were standing before almost every icon. The coffin was set down before the altar. The old colonel kissed his dead daughter once more and then left the church, together with the bearers of the beer, after he had ordered his servants to look after the philosopher and to take him back to the church after supper. The coffin bearers, when they returned to the house, all laid their hands on the stove. This custom is always observed in Ukraine by those who have seen a corpse. The hunger which the philosopher now began to feel caused him for a while to forget the dead girl altogether. Gradually all the domestics of the house assembled in the kitchen. It was really a kind of club where they were accustomed to gather. Even the dogs came to the door, wagging their tails in order to have bones and offal thrown to them. If a servant was sent on an errand, he always found his way into the kitchen to rest there for a while and to smoke a pipe. All the Cossacks of the establishment lay here during the whole day, on and under the benches, in fact, wherever a place could be found to lie down in. Moreover, everyone was always leaving something behind in the kitchen, his cap or his whip or something of the sort. But the numbers of the club were not complete till the evening. When the groom came in after tying up his horses in the stable, the cowherd had shut up his cows in their stalls, and others collected there who were not usually seen in the daytime. During supper time even the tongues of the laziest were set in motion. They talked of all and everything, of the new pair of breeches which someone had ordered for himself, of what might be in the centre of the earth, and of the wolf which someone had seen. There were a number of wits in the company, a class which is always represented in Ukraine. The philosopher took his place with the rest in the great circle which sat round the kitchen door in the open air. Soon an old woman with a red cap issued from it, bearing with both hands a large vessel full of hot galuchkis, which she distributed among them. Each drew out of his pocket a wooden spoon or a one-pronged wooden fork, as soon as their jaws began to move a little more slowly, and their wolfish hunger was somewhat appeased, they began to talk. The conversation, as might be expected, turned on the dead girl. Is it true? said a young shepherd. Is it true? Though I cannot understand it, 
that our young mistress had traffic with evil spirits? Who? The young lady? answered Doroche, whose acquaintance the philosopher had already made in the kibitka. Yes, she was a regular witch. I can swear that she was a witch. Hold your tongue, Doroche, exclaimed another, the one who, during the journey, had played the part of a consoler. We have nothing to do with that. May God be merciful to her. One ought not to talk of such things. But Doroche was not at all inclined to be silent. He had just visited the wine cellar with the steward on important business, and having stooped two or three times over one or two casks, he had returned in a very cheerful and loquacious mood. Why do you ask me to be silent? She has ridden on my own shoulders, I swear she has. Say, uncle, asked the young shepherd, are there signs by which to recognise a sorceress? No, there are not. Even if you knew the Psalter by heart, you could not recognise one. Yes, Dorosh, it is possible. Don't talk such nonsense. It is not for nothing that God has given each some special peculiarity. The learned maintain that every witch has a little tale. Every old woman is a witch, said a grey-headed Cossack quite seriously. Yes, you are a fine lot, retorted the old woman, who entered at that moment with a vessel full of fresh galuchkis. You're great fat pigs. A self-satisfied smile played round the lips of the old Cossack, whose name was Yavtush, when he found that his remark had touched the old woman on a tender point. The shepherd burst into such a deep and loud explosion of laughter as if two oxen were lowing together. This conversation excited in the philosopher a great curiosity and a wish to obtain more exact information regarding the colonel's daughter. In order to lead the talk back to the subject, he turned to his next neighbour and said, I should like to know why all the people here think that the young lady was a witch. Has she done any harm to anyone or killed them by witchcraft? Yes, there are reports of that kind, answered a man whose face was as flat as a shovel. Who does not remember the huntsman, Makita, or the barber? What has the huntsman, Makita, got to do with it? Stop. I will tell you a story of Makita. No, I will tell it, said the groom, for he was my godfather. I will tell the story of Makita said Spirit. Yes, yes, Spirit shall tell it, exclaimed the whole company, and Spirit began. You, Mr. Philosopher Thomas, did not know Makita. Ah, he was an extraordinary man. He knew every dog as though he were his own father. The present huntsman, Mikola, who sits three places away from me, is not fit to hold a candle to him, though good enough in his way. But compared to Makita, he's a mere milksop. You tell the tale splendidly, exclaimed Doroche, and nodded as a sign of approval. He saw a hare in the field quicker than you can take a pinch of snuff. He only need needed to whistle, Come here, Razboy, come here, Bostraha, and flew away on his horse like the wind, so that you could not say whether he went quicker than the dog, or the dog than he. He could empty a quart pot of brandy in the twinkling of an eye. Ah, he was a splendid huntsman. Only, 
For some time, he always had his eyes fixed on the young lady. Either he had fallen in love with her, or she had bewitched him. In short, he went to the dogs. He became a regular old woman. Yes, he became the devil knows what. It's not fitting to relate it. Very good, very good. If the young lady only looked at him, he let the reins slip out of his hands, called Bravko instead of Rasboy, stumbled, made all kinds of mistakes. One day, when he was curry-combing a horse, the young lady came to him in the stable. Listen, Mikita, she said. I should like for once to set my foot on you. And he, the booby, was quite delighted and answered, Don't only set your foot there, but sit on me altogether. The young lady lifted her white little foot, and as soon as he saw it, his delight robbed him of all his senses. He bowed his neck, the idiot, took her feet in both hands, and began to trot about like a horse all over the place. Whither they went, he could not say. He returned more dead than alive, and from that time he wasted away and became as dry as a chip of wood. At last, someone coming into the stable one day found instead of him only a handful of ashes and an empty jug. He had burned completely out, but it must be said he was a huntsman such as the world cannot match. When Spirit had ended his tale, they all began to vie with one another in praising the deceased huntsman. And have you heard the story of Hepticha? asked Durosh, turning to Thomas. Uh, no. Ha ha ha! One sees they don't teach you much in your seminary. Well, listen. We have here in our village a Cossack called Heptun, a fine fellow. Sometimes, indeed, he amuse himself by stealing and lying without any reason, but he is a fine fellow for all that. His house is not far away from here. One evening, just about this time, Kriptun and his wife went to bed after they had finished their day's work. Since it was fine weather, Hepticha went to sleep in the courtyard and Heptun in the house. No, no, I mean Hepticha went to sleep in the house on the bench and Heptun outside. No, Hepticha didn't go to sleep on a bench, but on the ground, interrupted the old woman who stood at the door. Durosh glowered at her for a moment and continued. In the cradle, which hung in the middle of the room, lay a one-year-old child. I do not know whether it was boy or girl. Hepticha had lain down and heard on the other side of the door a dog scratching and howling loud enough to frighten anyone. She was afraid, for women are such simple folk that if one puts out one's tongue at them behind the door in the dark, their hearts sink into their boots. But, she thought to herself, I must give this cursed dog one on the snout to stop his howling. So she seized the poker and opened the door. But hardly had she done so than the dog rushed between her legs straight to cradle. Then her teacher saw it was not a dog, but the young lady. And if only it had been the young lady as she knew her, it wouldn't have mattered. But she looked quite blue, and her eyes sparkled like fiery coals. She seized the child, beat its throat, and began to suck its blood. Hepticha shriek, Ah, my darling child! 
and rush out of the room. Then she saw that the house door was shut and rushed up to the attic and sit there, the stupid woman, trembling all over. Then the young lady come after her and beat her too. Poor fool. The next morning, Hepton carried his wife, all beaten and wounded, down from the attic. And the next day, she died. Such strange things happen in the world. One may wear fine clothes, but that does not matter. A witch is and remains a witch. After telling his story, Daroche looked around him with a complacent air and cleaned out his pipe with his little finger in order to fill it again. The story of the witch had made a deep impression on all, and each of them had something to say about her. One had seen her come to the door of his house in the form of a hayrick. From others, she had stolen their caps or their pipes. She had cut off the hair plaits of many girls in the village and drunk whole pints of blood of others. At last, the whole company observed that they had gossiped over their time, for it was already night. All looked for a sleeping place, some in the kitchen and others in the barn or the courtyard. Now, Mr. Thomas, it is time that we go to the dead, said the grey-haired Cossack, turning to the philosopher. All four, Spirid, Daroche, the old Cossack and the philosopher, betook themselves to the church, keeping off with their whips the wild dogs who roamed about the roads in great numbers and bit the sticks of passers-by in sheer malice. Although the philosopher had seized the opportunity of fortifying himself beforehand with a stiff glass of brandy, yet he felt a certain secret fear, which increased as he approached the church, which was lit up within. The strange tales he had heard had made a deep impression on his imagination. They had passed the thick hedges and trees, and the country became more open. At last, they reached the small enclosure round the church. Behind it, there were no more trees, but a huge empty plain dimly visible in the darkness. The three Cossacks ascended the steep steps with Thomas, and entered the church. Here, they left the philosopher, expressing their hope that he would successfully accomplish his duties, and locked him in as their master had ordered. He was left alone. At first he yawned, then he stretched himself, blew on both hands, and finally looked round him. In the middle of the church stood the black beer. Before the dark pictures of saints burned the candles whose light only illuminated the icons and cast a faint glimmer into the body of the church. All the corners were in complete darkness. The lofty icons seemed to be of considerable age. Only a little of the original gilt remained on their broken traceries. The faces of the saints had become quite black and looked uncanny. Once more, the philosopher cast a glance around him. Oh, bother it, said he to himself. What is there to be afraid about? No living creature can get in, 
And as for the dead and those who come from the other side, I can protect myself with such effectual prayers that they cannot touch me with the tips of their fingers. There is nothing to fear, he repeated, swinging his arms. Right, let us begin the prayers. As he approached one of the side aisles, he noticed two packets of candles which had been placed there. Oh, that is fine, he thought. I must illuminate the whole church till it is as bright as day. What a pity that one cannot smoke in it. He began to light the candles on the wall brackets and all the candelabra, as well as those already burning before the holy pictures. Soon the whole church was brilliantly lit up. Only the darkness in the roof above seemed still denser by contrast, and the faces of the saints peering out of the frames looked as unearthly as before. He approached the bier, looked nervously at the face of the dead girl, could not help shuddering slightly, and involuntarily closed his eyes. What a terrible and extraordinary beauty! He turned away and tried to go to one side, but the strange curiosity and peculiar fascination which men feel in moments of fear compelled him to look again and again, though with a similar shudder. And in truth, there was something terrible about the beauty of the dead girl. Perhaps she would not have inspired so much fear had she been less beautiful, but there was nothing ghastly or death-like in the face, which wore rather an expression of life, and it seemed to the philosopher as though she were watching him from under her closed eyelids. He even thought he saw a tear roll from under the eyelash of her right eye, but when it was halfway down her cheek, he saw that it was a drop of blood. He quickly went into one of the stalls, opened his book and began to read the prayers in a very loud voice in order to keep up his courage. His deep voice sounded strange to himself in the grave-like silence. It aroused no echo in the silent and desolate wooden walls of the church. Oh, what is there to be afraid of? He thought to himself. She will not rise from the beer since she fears God's word. She will remain quietly resting. Yes, and what sort of a Cossack would I be if I were afraid? The fact is, I have drunk a little too much. That is why I feel so queer. Let me take a pinch of snuff. It really is excellent, first rate. At the same time, he cast a furtive glance over the pages of the prayer book towards the beer, and involuntarily he said to himself, oh, There, see... She is getting up. Her head is already above the edge of the coffin. But a death-like silence prevailed. The coffin was motionless, and all the candles shone steadily. It was an awe-inspiring sight, this church lit up at midnight, with the corpse in the midst, and no living soul near but one. The philosopher began to sing in various keys in order to stifle his fears, but every moment he glanced across at the coffin, 
and involuntarily the question came to his lips. Suppose she rose up after all. But the coffin did not move. Nowhere was there the slightest sound nor stir. Not even did a cricket chirp in any corner. There was nothing audible but the slight sputtering of some distant candle or the faint fall of a drop of wax. Suppose she rose up after all. He raised his head. Then he looked around him wildly and rubbed his eyes. Yes, she was no longer lying in the coffin but sitting upright. He turned away his eyes but at once looked again, terrified at the coffin. She stood up. Then she walked with closed eyes through the church, stretching out her arms as though she wanted to seize someone. She now came straight towards him. Full of alarm, he traced with his finger a circle round himself. Then, in a loud voice, he began to recite the prayers and formulas of exorcism which he had learnt from a monk who had so often seen witches and evil spirits. She had almost reached the edge of the circle which he had traced, but it was evident that she had not the power to enter it. Her face wore a bluish tint, like that of one who has been several days dead. Thomas had not the courage to look at her, so terrible was her appearance. Her teeth chattered, and she opened her dead eyes, but as in her rage she saw nothing, she turned in another direction and felt with outstretched arms along the pillars and corners of the church in hope of seizing him. At last she stood still, made a threatening gesture, and then lay down again in the coffin. The philosopher could not recover his self-possession and kept on gazing anxiously at it. Suddenly, it rose from its place and began hurtling about the church with a whizzing sound. At one time it was almost directly over his head, but the philosopher observed that it could not pass over the area of his charmed circle, so he kept on repeating his formulas of exorcism. The coffin now fell with a crash in the middle of the church and remained lying there, motionless. The corpse rose again. It had now a greenish-blue colour, but at the same moment the distant crowing of a cock was audible, and it lay down again. The philosopher's heart beat violently, and the perspiration poured in streams from his face. But, heartened by the crowing of the cock, he rapidly repeated the prayers. As the first light of dawn looked through the windows, there came a deacon and the grey-haired Yavtuk, who acted as sacristan in order to release him. When he had reached the house, he could not sleep for a long time, but at last weariness overpowered him, and he slept till noon. When he awoke, his experiences of the night appeared to him like a dream. He was given a quart of brandy to strengthen him. At table, he was again talkative, 
and ate a fairly large suckling pig, almost without assistance. But, nonetheless, he resolved to say nothing of what he had seen, and, to all curious questions, only returned the answer, uh, Yes, uh, some wonderful things happened. That's all for this third part of the V. Please join us next time for the conclusion of our tale, in which Thomas prepares to spend a second night in the church, watching over the coffin. 